Well, here we are, September 20th, 2009, lecture discussion number one. Yeah, how about that, huh? Isn't that amazing? You can say you were here. Lecture discussion number one on Proverbs 6, Matthew 12, Zechariah 11, maybe Job 5, maybe Revelation 19. We'll just have to see how far we get. Excuse me. Actually, today's lesson, as I said, is a transition, transitory. Ah, barely could say it. Transitional, transitory. There we go. And it will tie somewhat to the series that we left behind. It took a hundred and five lectures, and that's over two years for those who were counting. So this is one that is going to take us from that slightly. I hope you'll recognize uh, the elements that are there and will, uh, to some extent, carry us to the next series. So the next series really isn't on Proverbs or Matthew 12 or Zechariah 11 or Job 5 or even Revelation. It's going to be a little bit uh, um, different. It's something new for me in the sense that I don't think I've done it in a church setting before. I've done it in a classroom setting. And I've been asked by a couple of you, uh, you've said to me, where is it that we're going? as if you expect that I might have a specific destination in mind, which I, by the way, immediately accept the where is it that we're going. I accept that as, a, as the obvious compliment that it is, because clearly I see it as confidence in my leadership being expressed in the form of a question. And I certainly do not in any way think it's sarcasm. I don't. So when you ask me where are we going... I don't think that you're being uncomplimentary, implying that me, the grand most high pastor potentate, I don't think that you're implying that I might be prone to wandering around. That, yeah, look, look, that, you call that polite. What church could you do that? Ha! You say at the pastor. Let me repeat. Grand most high pastor potentate. Let me repeat that. Anyway, some of you might think that I am prone to wandering around, bobbing in the water. I'm not, because I do have a plan. And eventually, my plan will be obvious to you. Notice the emphasis on the word eventually. But not today. Today really is Proverbs 6. I hope to get a little Matthew 12 in there, but I might not, in which case I'll pick it up and clean it up next week. Today is Proverbs 6 because of Lindsay. Where's Lindsay? She left. Isn't she? Okay, today is uh, Proverbs 6 because of Lindsay and, and Charlotte a lot of trouble. And probably Christopher. Did you have to do this too in your nursing? You might have. <laughs> Lindsay asked me to comment on an assignment of hers. A nursing class task for grade. What class is it, Charlotte, that this was given Management class. So you all are now taking nursing management today. That's what you're going to do. Welcome to nursing management. Lindsay asked me to comment on it. Uh, it's a, because it was a task for grade, and it was essentially bioethics. Is that what it was from, Lindsay Bell? Bioethics class or nursing management? What was it? Management. What good is nursing management? Why do you even take it? 
Okay, it's required. So it's required today. I'm going to take this entire nursing management class and boil it down to you in 50 minutes. I thought you all might appreciate what it was and what it, what it was doing uh, because um, the author of the hypothetical case study was attempting to manipulate to cause students to do something that he thought would be valuable to them as they went through the medical profession. So this is something that was designed for nurses and doctors. And I always find these types of things interesting in that they all follow the same predictable pattern that I spent a long time on previously, uh, probably sermons 90 to 105. They all followed that flawed premise. Sorry. They begin with the flawed premise that they are essentially unsolvable. So he thinks he has something that is unsolvable that can't be rationally thought through. That whatever is chosen by the student will be immoral, it'll be evil, it'll be unjust, or it'll be blameworthy. So there's your task to try to negotiate around something that the author here feels that you will not be able to satisfactorily negotiate. And you should immediately recognize that as what? Somebody gives you this kind of an assignment, believing that he will cause you to choose evil. What is that? Well, that is the subject of Matthew 4, 1 through 11, isn't it? That is the subject of Genesis 15. The premise of the lie of Satan is that he has an unsolvable a conundrum that God could not work through. God could not solve sin, which, of course, He proves that He could in Genesis 15. And, of course, it proves again in front of the angelic host in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, where He destroys the supposedly unsolvable premise of Satan. Up to that point, no one had solved it. And God had not revealed that He would solve it. So, this follows that same problem. And it is essentially the subject we left behind. It is the rock lift question. That's what he's done. But he's just disguised it in another form. The author of this. I think it's a man. I predict that it's a teenage boy. It is Jared Goldstein. Is the man or the boy that thought he had something unsolvable here. And I hope you recognize these kinds of things very quickly. As soon as you see them, you recognize and you assign them quickly to Matthew 4, 1 through 11, because that's where they all belong. Or Genesis 15, or Gethsemane, where Christ says, not my will, but your, your will let this cup pass. That is a the dramatic theodicy. Let me explain that really quickly. There is no difference between God's will and God's will. Christ is God. So when he says, let your will, not mine, that clearly isn't a conflict in the Godhead. That is a dramatic theodicy. That is God with Christ and the apostles, disciples. That is Him teaching how the Godhead is solving sin. Okay? If you don't understand that, see me afterwards, bring me a brownie. I see we have brownies. It's a buffet today. Meatballs. Can't go wrong with meatballs. What else we got? We have we have cabbage salad. Okay. <laughs> okay. We have meatballs and fudge. I see that. 
So if you're gonna you're gonna come talk to me, bring me a meatball or fudge. Do not bring me cabbage. No. <laughs> In any event, those very important to understand Genesis 15, Matthew 4, and Matthew 26, 36 through 56, which is Gethsemane. It's also very important to understand Judas, and we're going to do a little bit of that today. In any event, I found this this one most interesting because of what it does. It causes you to go to Proverbs 6. And that's a very important place to be. You need to know about that. And Proverbs 6 always takes you to Matthew 12. Matthew 12 takes you to Zechariah 11, which, of course, both places are not Matthew 12, but Zechariah 11 is Judas. And Judas shows up again as well in Matthew with regard to Proverbs 6. So this case study, unbeknownst to Jared, is a Proverbs 6 context. And I thought you might find the ensuing discussion valuable. And at the least, it will be revelatory as to the lack of wisdom that I think is commonplace, I imagine is commonplace, on the typical college campus today. They don't understand this. The teachers don't understand it. The students don't understand it. Anyway, it, it, such is the characteristics of these kinds of things. It's something actually very shallow, very simplistic, almost childish. Nonetheless, it's thought to be complex. That certainly is the case in the author. I could tell immediately by looking at it. He entitled it, you see, The Mother of All Case Studies. So he thinks, this is really hard. This is the mother of all case studies. And as soon as I read that, I was reminded of who? That's right, Baghdad Bob. I don't know if you remember, but he was a spokesman for Saddam Hussein's regime. And he denied the overwhelming routing defeat of the Iraqi Republican military, Republican Guard military, insisting that the, the Iraqis were invincible and they were triumphing. And uh, before finally uh, he had to go in hiding. But all the way to the end, he proclaimed uh, that uh, Iraq was winning. And so I imagine Baghdad Bob here because Baghdad Bob would say the same thing that this was the mother of all wars. And it took the U.S. military literally, what, 14 days, much to the shock of the Chinese and the Russians. So it wasn't the mother of all wars, and this is not the mother of all case studies. The first lesson in all of this is don't presuppose you have concocted the mother of all case studies when you have instead probably something, well, in this case, you do, something frail and flimsy and insubstantial or unsubstantial. Okay, the premise cannot be read in its entirety. I don't have time to read the whole thing to you, so I'm going to have to summate it. A summation will have to suffice for you today. Essentially, this is it. So, you ready? This is what it says it's going to do. You are in the case study. Us, but individualize it. You are one of nine survivors on a cruise ship sinking. Cruise ship sank, everybody died. There's only nine of you that made it. So you're one of nine, and you're in a lifeboat. You, us, we, me as well. You are a physician. You are an expert in viruses, a virologist. And you 
recently believe that you have solved the AIDS virus, but you have yet to share it with anybody. Yeah, right. And you were unconscious in the water and you were saved by an alcoholic crew member who is dying of cirrhosis of the liver, who happens to be an expert in lifeboat small engines repair and navigational electronics, emergency radio transmission devices, arc welding and hydraulics. He pulls you out of the water and puts you in the lifeboat. Also aboard in the Lifeboat is the required multi-billionaire. And as soon as I got here, I thought to myself, this is Gilligan's Island. This is what this is. The mother of all case studies is Gilligan's Island. Come on, you've got to be kidding. And I started whistling the song. You know, I can name them all, right? So can most of you. That's Nick at Night for those of you who are younger. <sighs> so... I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I've obviously got the professor here, and, and now I've got Mr. Howell. It's a replay of 60s television. Anyway, the multi-billionaire happens to be, to update it for a little while, the multi-billionaire also is a sexual predator and a mafioso. Okay, have you got it so far? You are a renowned virologist, physician, who has solved AIDS and you are pulled in to a lifeboat by an alcoholic crew member dying of cirrhosis of the liver who happens to be really good at small engine repair, among other things. Anyway, the multi-billionaire is a sexual predator. He's in the boat and his heroin-addicted daughter and her newborn Down syndrome baby son are also survivors, along with a little young girl dying of leukemia. You getting the drift yet? And her puppy. Her puppy. She has a puppy. Okay? It says it here, and I didn't write this in, but I couldn't make this up. The puppy alerted the survivors to the cataclysmic explosion of the boat that went down. So the puppy is responsible for saving everybody's life. And I hope you see where this is going. Finally, on the boat... There's Parvarati and Mother Teresa. Okay? So there's nine of you in all. Let me go through them. You, the incredible physician with the key to AIDS that no one knows about but you and your brain. MacGyver, he's on the boat. George Soros, he's on the boat. And his daughter, her newborn son with Down syndrome, a small girl dying of leukemia, and a puppy so far. And then, there's Pavarotti and Mother Teresa. So that's nine of you, right? A renowned artist and a missionary. It says missionary and renowned artist. And I, I converted them to Mother Teresa and Pavarotti and George Soros and MacGyver, as you can see. And Gilligan. Okay. Also, everyone on the lifeboat has been infected with flesh-eating bacteria, including you. So, everyone is going to die in 20 minutes or something. I don't know, really fast. So, you got a whole picture? 
so far, but you, miraculously, coincidentally, you have four, only four, get them now while they last, plus shipping and handling, you have four antidote serum injections for flesh-eating bacteria, by the way, which you have to activate or make somehow, but you can make four, but you have to kill somebody on the boat in order to make the life-saving serum antidote for the flesh-eating bacteria that all of you have and you're all going to die in 20 minutes. That's the Baghdad Bob, mother of all case studies. You must decide quickly upon what? Yeah, four can be saved, and you must decide quickly upon what basis will life be given. Do you see what's happening? Do you see all the elements? I have to kill somebody to save a life. What do we call that today in politics? Yes, we do. We call that stem cell research, right? And so you can see the, the ethics of the issue coming here, or abortion, whatever you want to call it, you must decide quickly upon what basis will life be given, upon what criteria will the four that you choose be saved. And I left out a few details. Um, I did, and let's see if I get to them. Let's see. I left out a few details. Let me see. Oh, yeah. Pavarotti is eating all the rations. Okay? George Soros offers you money for two of the doses. Or he'll have you killed if you don't give it to him. Okay? I imagine he's going to bribe the guy, he's going to bribe MacGyver and send out a radio transmission in the event you live through this. Mother Teresa and MacGyver both refuse the injections. The boat will obviously sink without MacGyver. And the orphans in Calcutta will all die without Mother Teresa. See how this all works? Everyone with AIDS or flesh-eating bacteria will die without who? Yes, because you are going to save them all, right? And so, did I, is that, did I leave anything out of importance? Did I get it all? Were you concerned about Pavarotti eating the rations? I took that one. Okay. Okay, well... That goes without saying. He's eating all the rest. Okay. Will you condemn the small girl who's dying of leukemia? Will you kill the puppy? The puppy. Will you, you monster, kill the puppy? Anyway, you get the drift. The point is, is to get you to decide which human life has the greater value, isn't it? To put some value on it. Which one has the greater value to mankind or society in general? And it's bioethics, it's rationing, it's eugenics, it is stem cell research. It's all of that is hidden in this silly mother of all case studies that he's so proudly titled. Uh, more appropriately, I think it's Gilligan's Island meets one flew over the cuckoo's nest or something along those lines, or desperate housewives, but it certainly is not the mother of all case studies. Anyway, this premise is very, very common. Mankind, it is said, must have the power. Mankind must have an established value system which then determines which members, which persons, are even defined as persons and which has the greater wealth of those that are defined as persons. And that is Proverbs 6. That's why Proverbs 6 is so important. Needless to say, this proposition has always been around. It occasionally manifests itself in a society. And when it does, 
when someone who has this idea uh, becomes powerful in a society or when this idea becomes um, overwhelming in a society, then it always, whether it be in, in Hitler's Germany or what's going on in Africa, it always has the natural conclusion, which is genocide, eugenics, extermination. That's what happens when this kind of thought... This is Malthusian. I don't know if you know who Thomas Malthus is, but putting value on human life has been around for a long time. Malthus was... Uh, um, is prominent in the eugenics discussion that really took hold in this country in the early 1900s. And of course, as, uh, as I said, it uh, became prominent in Stalin's Russia and Hitler's Germany. And it still exists in the African continent. So, where would we go to Scripture to see what the creator of life, he that is life, would say about this? Well, we should begin with the very, very complex passage that is Proverbs 6, 1 through 19. Very complex passage. It's very, very hard to understand. Most people know a little bit about it because it is the seven things that God hates. seven things that God hates. And that is what Proverbs 6, 1 through 19 is famous for. And whatever you do, do not anthropomorphize this. God has hate, but it's what kind of hate as opposed to your kind of hate or my kind of hate or our kind of hate. Our hate is what? Our hate is sin. God's hate is what? It's righteous. It's good. So when you see the word hate, you have to define it as God would define it for Himself. Keep that at the forefront. Okay, let's quickly read this very, very, very difficult passage that's extraordinarily complicated. And, and when I say that, I'm saying that over and over again so that you do not take it lightly. Okay, Proverbs 6, 1 through 19. And you need to read along. It's on page 883. If you don't have a Bible... Okay, whatever. But if you don't have a Bible, we have some somewhere. Okay, would some very holy servant of God, please. Okay, there goes Amanda. Hurry, she's got really long legs. Okay, Amanda, please pass out textbooks to all and any who wish to follow along. It's very difficult to get this with me just reading it to you because of all the little things that are hidden in here. Get in the habit of understanding that the Bible is has many layers and many things hidden in it. Thank you, Amanda. Are you related to me in any way, Amanda? Yes, you are. That's right. Okay, here we go. No, you won't admit it. My son... If you become surety for your friend, what is this? If you co-sign a loan. Now, not any loan, by the way. Why does the friend want the loan? There's a whole bunch of questions. What is the friend doing that's causing this need for a loan? My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you are snared. By the words of your mouth. In other words, you're in a trap. And it's not any snare. It's the snare that goes around your neck that's choking you to death. 
So you co-sign a loan for this kind of person that has come to you. Not Don't misunderstand. You're going to have to co-sign a loan for who? Your kids. Why? Why are you going to have to co-sign a loan for your kids? Why? So that you can get rid of them. That's what it's all about. It's a small price to pay. Man, if you buy them a car, what happens? They leave. Otherwise, they leave in your car. You know, you've got to think this through. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a certain kind of person that comes to you and you co-sign a loan and now you're in a snared trap. You are taken by the words of, and you're dying. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself from death. For you have come into the hands of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hands of the hunter and like a bird from the hands of the fowler. In other words, do everything you can do to get out of this. This is a death trap. This particular <coughs> excuse me again. This particular thing that's being described. So, understand that. Now, what do we have to do? We have to figure out why this is a death trap. We don't have time today. Maybe next week. Then it goes on. Go to the ant, you sluggard. In other words, if you're, you're lazy. You lazy people, go look at the ant. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, no overseer, no ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, lazy person? Oh, sluggard. When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come on to you. Poverty. Did I spell it right? hope so. Your poverty. So this is about poverty. Why is cosigning alone about poverty? And poverty equals what in the first part? It equals death. Why does poverty equal death? So shall your poverty come unto you like a prowler and your need like a strong man or armed man. Now, here comes the, here comes the solution to what he's talking about. And this is the Holy Spirit through Solomon writing this. A worthless person. Some of you might have Old King James. What does Old King James say? Naughty, okay? And you would see the word naughty, and you would think what? You would, you would think what? Childish. Childish? Okay, the actual Hebrew word is B-E-L-I-A-L. Do you recognize that word? I will get to it in a minute. Naughty means not. Does it mean naughty, like naughty little boy or naughty little girl? It means not. What does not mean? It's a mathematical term. It means zero, yes. Nothing. All for not. All for nothing. Nil. Zero. Okay? A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. So what you should be doing right now, by the way, you should be trying to figure out who this is. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. Why is he winking? Who's he winking to? He's shuffling his feet. What's that mean? He's doing something with his feet. What is it? And what's it for? He points with his fingers. Obvious question. 
Where is he pointing? Who is he pointing at? What's the purpose of this? Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. Proud look. What's number two? Lying. Hung. Number three, innocent shedding. Okay, now you're starting to get why this fits with your case study. Shedding what? Innocent blood. Oops. God hates those who shed innocent blood. Now, what's the obvious question? Who's innocent? Why are they shedding the innocent blood? Number four, Let's see, if, let's see if mine says it a little different. Uh, no, wicked plans. Okay, somebody besides Bill, he's got them all right so far. I'm making you do it because you need to know your seven things. You're going to have a case study come up. Okay? Okay. Feet that run to evil, swiftly to evil, running running can't stop you can't stop you you love evil you've got to run to it okay false witness somebody that goes into a courtroom and lies about somebody okay false witness in other words false testimony and then finally what are they testifying about by the way and then, uh, and then the one who sows discord. Okay? There's your seven things that God hates. Now, when you start to read something like this, and again, let me say to you, it's very complicated. Why is it so complicated? Well, it doesn't seem to make sense. First, I'm talking about a guy that's got a cosine loan. Then I'm talking about an ant. And then all of a sudden, i got this wicked guy. And then i got seven things that God hates. How do they all fit together? The first two are pretty much about poverty. One, I'm poor because I'm signing bad loans with guys that are cheating me. And the other one is, and so I lose all my money and my wealth that way or anything that I have. The other way, I'm too lazy to go get any. So I start out with poverty and then I end up with evil and then I end up with things that God hates. How do those fit together? Doesn't seem to make any sense. Doesn't seem like it should fit together. Always start with what rule number one. What's rule number one? Yeah. Find Jesus Christ in the Scripture. He's there. He's there. Where is He? Did you find Him? Now, I know Solomon, it's a Solomonic proverb, so there's always a Solomonic typology. The great wisdom of Solomon is clearly a picture of God's Christ's omniscience, right? And this is Christ's voice, if you will, the Holy Spirit using Solomon to teach of Christ. So this teaches of Jesus Christ. Where is he? He's hidden there. Always know one thing. He is on every single page of the Old Testament. You can't find a page he's not on. So where is he? Verses 12 through 19 are particularly mysterious. And that makes, as I said, verses 1 through 11 all the more puzzling. How is it that these link together? 
And how do I find the link that makes poverty, uh, death, uh, wickedness, perversity, and the seven things that God hates? How do I get them together? Do Where in the New Testament can I find this? Because if it's in the Old Testament, where is it else? It's in the New Testament. Will Christ talk about this? Yes. Where in the New Testament does He talk about it? That will explain to you. And... and I kind of gave it away a little bit, but what, what does this have to do with Gilligan's Island? Our mother of all case studies. Well, I'm hoping that some of you have noticed the order already. This, Proverbs 6, 1 through 19, is the 13th sermon. And this is for Dave Ibeck. It says right here, which will be of particular interest to Dave Ibeck, because Dave is fascinated by numerology. And he knows that there are significant mathematical patterns in the Old Testament for sure, but certainly all through the Bible, the New Testament as well. 6, 1 through 19 is the 13th Sermon of Solomon. He gives 17 sermons. This is the 13th one. I can yell at Dave and say, does 13 do anything for you, Dave? Corruption. It is the number of who, Dave? Yeah, it's the number of the Antichrist and Satan. It's rebellion, corruption, heavy sin. This is the 13th subject of Solomon. He would get the subject right. The Bible got lucky again. It's so lucky. Gosh, God is lucky. But this is the 13th of 17th. The 13th sermon begins with gullibility, being, dece- being deceived into co-signing an unpayable and unrepayable debt. A trap that leads to your neck being cut off, ensnared. A trap that leads to poverty leads to death. The second is followed by laziness, which leads to poverty. And then all of a sudden you are struck by a prower or a strong man quickly and killed. Why does poverty lead to death? And this man of nothing, this man of naught, this um, losing pins like crazy. We'll go with red. Are you getting me a pen, Amanda? Does anyone believe her? Does anyone? She's getting coffee. But I, but I thought I. Oh, you're making her get up in the middle of the sermon. I didn't think so. Another lie. God hates. What is that? Oh, here it is. Okay. Not. This word not is a big clue because Belial. Belial is not just a word that means nothing. It is a name. It is a name of who? The worthless man. Yes. So who said that? I heard it. Yes. Beelzebub is where this is. It is a name of Satan. The man of nothing. Belial is the wicked man, is a satanic man. This is a man who devises evil continually. And it's followed, as I said, by 16 through 19, which are undeniably, these undeniably are what? The attributes of a person. What person? Those are Satan's attributes. All seven of them. 
Satan is the father of lies, John 8.44. A murderer, the shedder of innocent blood, John 8.44. From the beginning, Satan's pride, I will be like the Most High. I will set my throne above. I will ascend, Isaiah 14.12-14. Satan ran. He ran from angel to angel. He was in a hurry to get his plan. He loved his plan so much. Uh, Ezekiel 28:16 and he and it became he became filled with violence. Satan is the great deceiver and the accuser, constantly bringing false testimony into the courtroom. He is the one who sows discord. So again, the order here: poverty, poor, struggle like a gazelle to get loose from a from a predator that's got it and trying to kill it by out. How does a predator kill the gazelle? Bites it where? In the neck to do what? Suffocate. You see, you see, the suffocation imagery is the same. Struggle like a gazelle or a bird that's been trapped by a hawk, a fowler. Struggle to get away from this deal that you signed, that ensnared you, that entrapped you. What kind of? Who'd you sign the deal with? You made a deal. You co-signed the note. With who? Your friend. And you're going to die. Okay. Struggle. Get away. Then, look at the ant. The ant doesn't have a ruler. The ant has no ruler. has no overseer, no captain. And what's he do? He gathers food. He's wise. And then this great question to the one who is lazy, who doesn't gather anything, who has no wise, has no wisdom. And he says this, when will you resurrect? When? When will you resurrect? You who have never spent any time getting any wisdom. What's the definition of wisdom? Knowledge of Jesus Christ. There he is. When will you rise, you who have no wisdom? Look at the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. Gather knowledge of Christ. So again, the order. Poverty, poor, struggle with death. Do anything to escape this trap. Instead, gather food, gather wisdom. You don't have a ruler. Don't rely on who? Don't rely on overseers or captains. Who do you rely on? You should have a theocracy, not a governmental ruler. Remember, Israel turned down the Shekinah glory in the temple. The temple, the God Himself, the fire of God, the glory, the light of God is on the throne inside the Holy of Holies. And they threw it out, didn't they? They didn't want a fire. They didn't want God on the throne. Who did they want? They wanted Saul. So they threw out God to get a man because they wanted the man to rule over them. And then when God, the Shekinah glory, comes as a man, what did they do? They threw Him out again, right? So don't do that. Understand rulership and captaincy and overseer. Be wise like the ant. Gather food. What's food? Who's bread? Who's the bread of life? And then poverty comes on like a strong man, like a prowler. That is a Matthew 12 reference. Hopefully we get there.
All of that is followed by the wicked man, the idle man, the nothing man who has a perverse mouth constantly signaling the wicked while lying. His plan is evil. You see him again in Zechariah 11. He is the evil shepherd or the idle shepherd or the worthless shepherd or the foolish shepherd with the withered arm. He is the counterfeit. He is the false testimony. And his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he is broken. And there is Jesus Christ again. Christ is the what? He is the suddenly. He is the calamity. Isaiah 45, 7. I make peace and create calamity. The idle shepherd who deceived is then, who deceives the poor is followed by Belial, which is the attributes of Satan and the name of Satan, which God calls an abomination, which God calls adultery. And God hates these seven characteristics of Satan. Now, this is a quick note. When I say abomination, as it says so, these six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to Him. That, by the way, is what's called X plus X plus, X plus 1. That ends up in Job 5 for Dave. This is all for Dave. The rest of you don't pay any attention. But it's a very important numerological concept there. Anyway, when I say abomination, what's the real word? It's adultery. That's right. He calls these things adultery. The proud look, the lying tongue, the shedding of innocent blood, the wicked plans, the running to evil, the false testimony, the sowing discord. That is adultery to God. That is worshiping a pagan symbol or another person. The ultimate adultery, the ultimate abomination that makes desolate uh, Daniel 9. What is that? That is the Antichrist. The abomination, the greatest adultery would be human beings worshiping what? Worshiping another created being as who? God. And that is called the ultimate adultery. You worship God as God. You don't worship a created being as God. That's false testimony, false witness, right? So, there you go. The order, again, a trap, struggling to escape, laziness, not gathering wisdom, poor, poverty, the worthless, perverse, lying, wicked shepherd leader arises, then followed by the seven attributes of Satan. There it is. Christ in John 12:7 with Judas, because Judas is the leader of the apostles. You may not know that, but a little study you're going to figure out. Judas is the leader of the apostles. Judas in John 12, 7 with Christ is questioning the anointing of Christ by Mary, sister of Lazarus. She is pouring this very expensive oil all over him and Judas has a plan. He says what? Yeah, don't, don't, don't anoint him. Because he knew what the anointing was because Judas is an extraordinary human being. Eventually, he is entered by Satan. Satan only enters one person in all of Scripture. That's Judas until who? Until the Antichrist. 
But Satan will enter Judas. Judas says, don't waste that oil in an anointing ceremony. Anointing for what? What's the oil anointing you for? Death. It's an anointing oil that precedes death. Don't put the oil on him. Sell it and give the proceeds to the who? Poor. There you go. See? Poor. Keeps showing up, doesn't it? That's why Proverbs comes in here. And that was an exceptionally intricate, cunning plan that Judas proposed. Anyway, Christ responds, For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So what is God's definition of poor in the context of anointing oil being poured on His feet just before He dies? How does He define poor? The poor you will have with you always. What's the definition of poor? What is God's definition of poor? In Proverbs 6, 1-19, through what is God's definition of poor? Is it the same as it would be in John 12, 7? That's my question to you. Is it the same? Rich is often used as a symbol of salvation, isn't it? True riches is salvation. True riches, not fake riches, not counterfeit witness. Somebody calling us? Because I hear your voice, dear. We need to let more people know that we have church on Sunday. (laughs) That would be good. But the symbol, rich, is often used as a symbol of salvation. True riches is salvation as opposed to Revelation 3.17. Because you say, this is Revelation 3.17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. You see how it all starts to come together? I have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Because you don't know that, I will vomit you out. That's Revelation 3.16 and 17. When will the ones whose poverty comes on them like a strong man. And the strong man is Satan. When will the ones whose poorness comes on them like a strong man and overpowers them? When will the ones who are overpowered by Satan, when will they rise? When will you rise from your sleep? Proverbs 6, 9. When will you rise from your sleep? When will you resurrect? Because how many resurrections you got, by the way? Do you know how many resurrections you got? How many? Come on, you can do this. It's really not a very difficult question. How many do you have? Yes, five. Very good. Good. There are five. Which one is you? The one who sleeps. The one who is poor. The one who Satan has devoured. When is your resurrection? It is... The resurrection under condemnation. And that's what he's asking them in Proverbs 6.3. You will rise under death, under condemnation, under the lake of fire. So, which of the four did you choose to live? What are your choices? Remember, MacGyver and Mother Teresa, they want no part of this. They're out. You can take me and make the serum. You can throw me overboard. I'm out. Now, the case study guy, Jared, 
call him Jared. He says, if you throw MacGyver out, what happens to you? You all die because he can run the boat. He can, he can make a new boat out of popsicle sticks or whatever he's going to do. So you, no matter what happens, you've got to have MacGyver. You've you got to have him because he's going to start the boat motor, right? He's going to radio for help. You have no chance unless you pick MacGyver, right? Got to pick him. And MacGyver says what? Not me. I don't want the deal. Go ahead. Make the serum out of me. Choose somebody else. Mother Teresa, she says, I ain't doing this. Judgment for this decision is near. Because what are you what's the what's the assumption? That you can do what? First you got flesh eating bacteria, don't you? You're in a lifeboat. Somebody Pavarotti's eating all the food. Your boat motor doesn't work. MacGyver's an alcoholic who says he can do the navigational aids, he can make the motor work, everything's going to be fine. What's your chances of making it through this? Let me give A hundred is you're going to make it through. What's your chances? You've got flesh-eating bacteria, you're out of rations, you're in a boat, you're the only survivors, and nobody knows where you're at. By the way, that was a little detail I forgot to put up. What are your chances of surviving? Not good, would you, would you say? So, I can stop your flesh-eating bacteria until when? <laughs> until a wave just completely swamps your boat and the sharks get you, right? So, so MacGyver and uh, Mother Teresa figured out that the, uh, the, uh, that the next thing that's going to happen is what? You're going to stand in front of the judge. Now, the last thing you, th- you do before you stand in front of the judge... Is going to happen here really soon. Go ahead, interrupt me. I know, I didn't bring it in because I think he meant Jehovah's Witness because he thinks Jehovah's Witnesses are saved. They're not. Um, I didn't want to complicate that. Um, I know that, but the chance that Jared knows that is nil. Not. T. Judgment for this decision that you're about to make is very, very near. MacGyver and Mother Teresa, they get that really quick. One large wave, a couple of little sharks, it's all over anyway. And you're gonna, it doesn't matter how many injections you get of a serum that might work. So you really have to say, how does, what does God want me to do here? Does God, how does God define, by the way, innocent blood? Obviously, innocent blood is a what? First and foremost, innocent blood. Who has innocent blood? Who is it? Who's got it? Innocent blood is who? That's a picture of Christ, isn't it? Obviously, innocent blood is a Christ reference first and foremost. But also in Scripture, innocent is ascribed to those falsely accused who are then executed. And innocent is applied to who else? Children. Puppies. You miserable puppy killing. Okay. Children that are sacrificed to Moloch. See, they used to take their children, the pagans did in Canaan, and they would take their child and they'd heat up this brass statue that's super red hot, take this newborn child and put it in the hands of this statue and burn it alive. And God hates that, by the way the sacrifice of innocent children. His children, He has righteous anger for that. Okay? 
So the mother of all case studies is really quite simple. Do you really think you are? Did you fall for that? I hope you didn't. How were you described? You're what? You're the virologist that has what? You have the cure for age and you're the person who can do what? You can save how you can what? You can let's talk talk about that again. You can what's that word? How many people can you what? Okay, how many people can you save? None. How about yourself? Can you save yourself? No. Did you fall for that? Because that's the premise. Tries to make you think that you can save somebody and you can save yourself. Both of those are what? Ooh. Things God hates. Do not be so conceited that you think that you can save yourself or save others. Really save yourself? Did you really think you're the Savior of mankind? If you live, all of mankind will live. Is that what you're going to go in front of? You're going to think that here comes the wave, here comes the shock. You did. You're going to stand in front of the great white throne and say, "Hey, I killed the puppy because I thought I'm the savior of mankind." You like your chances with that? Mother Teresa MacGyver knew better. They're going to do that. Impending death. Please don't think you're going to save mankind just 20 seconds before you get flooded and eaten by a fish. Think about what's coming next. Do you devise a wicked plan to save yourself? You say, oh, I'm really important to mankind, so I'll kill the puppy and the little girl. Or maybe I'll kill the mother of the Downs. Well, no, I've already killed the Downs. I'm going to take out the the multi-billionaire. He's evil. You are going to decide who should live and who should die. Who are you trying to be? Who are you trying to be? Are you trying to be the one that ascends to the Most High? Are you trying to take His place? Are you swift to run to evil? Do you shed innocent blood? No greater love than what? No greater love than who? Than the one who lays down his life for another. What's the very first thing you should do? You're in that boat. You're about to see your Maker, your Judge. You should stand there with some kind of You should say, I did the right thing at the very end. No greater love than what? Then you lay your life down. Has God got another plan for AIDS? Yeah, you don't know what it is. Don't think it's you. What about the people on the boat? You got another plan for flesh-eating bacteria? What are you supposed to do? Do the godly thing. Do the Christ thing. Be Christ-like, which is what? Is it kill the children and the puppy? No, it's not. Again, I was proud of MacGyver and Mother Teresa. First thing they wanted to do, take me. Take my life. 
They didn't think, you got to save me because I'm going to take care of the kids in Calcutta. They can't be taken care of except by me. didn't happen. You've got to save me. Otherwise, the boat will never work. We'll all die. Unless I'm here, I'm the only one that can run all this stuff. You have no hope unless I'm saved. They didn't say that. What did they say? Take me. You're standing there. What do you say? Take me. Good for you. This really is as the musicians sneak forward. We'll do some more of it next week. You can come up and bring me a brownie and fight with me in just a minute. People have to go. They're hungry. But this is really what? This is really what? This mother of all case study. It's two things. Yeah, it's an attack on the character of God and it's a stupid test. Okay. No, oh no, no. No, all he's trying to do is get you to make an evil decision. That's what he's trying to get you to do. Don't fall for that. Let's rise and be dismissed. Our last song is Holy Holy, page 41.